Hello, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 9 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated queer people in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of Berlin's Schwules Museum. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. Last week, we talked about Gertrude Stein, or should I say, last, last week, last week, 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 last, last week, last week, we talked, <laughs> talked, we talked, 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 we talked, we talked, we talked about, about, about Gertrude Stein, um, a modernist writer and art collector who hosted a famous salon in interwar Paris, um, but also had some uncomfortable views about fascism, as so many of our subjects do. Who are we going to talk about this week, Hugh? Um, this week, we're going to talk about somebody called Camilla Hall. And I'm actually not going to say much more about her um, before I start, because um, first of all, I think she won't be very well known, um, at least by her name, by any of our listeners, um, including me before I started researching her. And also because I think it's important, her life story um, and the way it sort of plays out, I think is an interesting way to understand this development of how she went from one thing to another, how she became uh, what she became known for. So I'll just get on with it. Um, Camilla Christine Hall was born on the 24th of March, 1945, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota and the Midwest in general had experienced a huge amount of immigration from both Germany and the Scandinavian region in the 19th century, and Hall's grandfather was part of that. He'd emigrated to the US um, in the late 19th century from Sweden, while her maternal grandparents were from Germany. Her father was George Friedolf Hall. Yes, all of the immigration from Scandinavia is why they sort of talk like this in Minnesota, you know. <laughs> um, well, I'll take your word for it. I've never been to Minnesota. But uh, yeah, so her father was called George it's Very, Fried very cold. Yeah. It's, not, it, it's not really fit for human habitation. Um, her father was called George Friedolf Hall, and he was born in 1908, and he was a Lutheran pastor at the Augustana Evangelical Lutheran Church, uh, which was built by these migrants. The church was also behind the creation of a local university, Gustavus Adolphus, a private liberal arts college in St. Peter that has the motto, strength comes to us from heaven, and the college represents the deep Swedish roots of the community. It boasts an Alfred Nobel Science Hall, the Falka Bernadotte uh, Memorial Library, and the Linnaeus Arboretum. So, so far, so Lutheran. Um, George Hall was a theology professor at Gustavus Adolphus, and he married Lorena Deschner, who had been key in starting the art department at the college, and then she went on to become the head of the art department. The Halls had four children, two sons, Peter and Terry, then Camilla, and then another girl, Nan. And George was a, a respected author in the town. Uh, he wrote a lot on Martin Luther. He also translated Luther's writings into English. So all in all, a, a very respectable white middle-class American family a pastor, two professors, four blonde children, but it was one that would be touched by tragedy. When Camilla was just three, her eldest brother, Peter, died suddenly on the way back from a family holiday from an undiagnosed heart condition when he was just seven. Then two years later, when Camilla was five, her other brother, Terry, died too from a liver condition aged eight. The deaths had a profound effect on the young family. In 1952, when Camilla was seven, the whole family left their work at, uh, at Gustavus Adolphus and all their friends in St. Peter's, and they traveled to the territory of uh, Tanganyika, which was a British-controlled mandate in Germany, East Africa, in what is today Tanzania. Um, and there they worked as missionaries, with George working in um, education for the Lutheran Church. And uh, he later wrote a book about the experience called Come Along to Tang Tanganyika. Um, 
But after only two years, they returned because Camilla's little sister, Nan, had become ill. Um, she had uh, nephritis, the same liver condition that had killed Terry, her brother. But she received med- medical treatment, um, although she remained sick throughout their childhood. And they spent a lot of their teenage years moving around the country, um, including living in New Jersey for a while, and then they moved back to Minnesota, um, thanks to her, the father's work. And Lorena, the mother, um, she remembers uh, Camilla, this sort of turned Camilla into like a very strong-willed child. She was energetic, athletic, and unlike her little sister Nan, um, she hated frilly dresses and she refused to dress in them. She was smart, she was independent, she was a a touch rebellious. She started to smoke in high school, which her parents were very concerned about, but she was very close to her parents. And uh, she was also dating boys in high school, but more socially, uh, you know, with other girls than sort of seriously, she didn't have a serious boyfriend. And she was also um, very creative. She enjoyed music and art, Um, but she didn't like her name. And so in high school, she was known as Candy. And when she was 17 in her senior year, it was just before the start of the Christmas holiday. um, The last day of term, she was named class clown by her classmates. And the following day, her sister Nan died. Uh, Which obviously, I mean, just heartbreaking, super tough for the family. Um, to lose three kids in childhood. But um, at the same time, they were, you know, in this very, very close-knit community. They received a lot of support from the community. And in fact, um, after the funeral and the burial of her sister, they came back to find out that all her classmates had sort of gotten into their house while they were away and bought them a Christmas tree and had decorated their house for them, which um, I don't know if I'd like that or not, but the the thought is extremely touching. Anyway, her parents had moved to um, Illinois the following year for work, but Camilla, having graduated from school, stayed in Minnesota to attend Gustavus Adolphus. Um, but she didn't really like being sort of known as her father's daughter there, and she also didn't really think the quality of education was as good as she expected. So she transferred to the University of Minnesota after her freshman year. She majored in humanities, and she was an A-grade student, um, saying she wanted to, quote, get an awareness of what it means to be a human being in the 20th century. In her junior year, she accompanied her parents on a missionary expedition to South America, um, which, which sort of opened her eyes quite a lot politically. And on her return, she moved into student halls because um, she wanted to be more involved in student life. And so, yeah, she was developing this sort of political awareness of the world. And the Vietnam War at this point had been raging for a decade. You know, it was like 1965. And uh, in the US, the anti-war movement was growing in strength, in influence and in confidence. She became involved in the movement And at some point, she began withholding her taxes on her telephone bill as a sort of minor protest against the war, which is obviously, you know, where she's starting from politically. Um, There are some later news reports that state that she was actually involved in the gay rights movement at this point, but her roommate denied this. And I think it's probably quite unlikely. 65 pre-Stonewall in Minnesota, a 19-year-old girl. I don't really, it seems unlikely. I mean, it's possible. There were at this time groups like the Daughters of Belitis. Um, I don't, I mean, I'm not necessarily familiar with any Minnesota uh, outposts of them. And she was, um, also wasn't out at this point. There's no evidence of her having, having um, relationships with women at this point. So it seems unlikely to me. If there's no evidence of that, that, it's, that it seems preposterously unlikely that she actually yeah. was involved in the, in the gay rights movement at the time. Yeah. Anyway, in 1967, she began, began a probationary period um, working as a social worker. She'd graduated at this point. Um, and there's a, there's a reference letter that I actually found um, from a friend of hers called Kathy Wenberg to a prospective employer. Um, 
I don't know why, but it's 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 a bit of a cruel letter. I mean, it's, it's a very it's a it's a reference letter. So it's obviously it's very um, nice about it, but um, just something about the tone of it is like extremely Midwest Lutheran, because she says of Camilla, quote, "I don't want it to make it, I don't want to make it sound as if Candy's perfect. She's not. I suppose one of the first things you notice about her is her appearance. Candy is not a picture of the feminine lady." Exclamation mark. She loves to dress casually and sometimes over. <laughs> She loves to dress casually and sometimes overdoes it. This, I guess, had to do with her being such a big-built girl. Also, she's been a student for so long and dressing like it, she doesn't realise that there are skirts and dresses. But I'm sure that as soon as she starts work, this will be corrected. Thanks, Ka- Thanks Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea that she's just like, when you're a, when you're a college student, Student, you just you, you you have a, a genetic difference where you're not able to see the skirts in the window. I can just and, uh, I can just picture Kathy though, right, with this like sort of you know her sort of hair, hair done up and skirts and like really worrying about this fact that, that this friend of hers who's clearly like smart and intelligent and funny and kind is like wearing trousers. Oh gee, I, I just wonder, wouldn't worry about Candy so much in her. her and I hope she'll be okay. Yeah. Anyway. Um, she got the job, and her supervisor at the time described her as having, quote, excellent natural qualities, the foremost being her concern for people. Uh, she also joined the National Association of Social Workers, um, and uh, in Duluth, where she was working, she was assigned to work with unwed mothers, and she became increasingly angry and frustrated with her role there. Her supervisor, Dolores Peck, was much more, um, if not conservative, she believed in doing things by the book. She really believed it in working within the social work system. Um, but Camilla got angry, not just with the red tape of the social work, but also more widely with this social justice that she was, uh, so- social injustice that she was exposed to as part of her job. Um, and this is around the time that the new left is emerging, you know, this is like 1968, um, the Democratic Convention. Um, so she was beginning to become aware of things like these sort of political movements. And so she threw herself into politics and she began writing for a local underground newspaper. Um, in 1968, George Wallace was running on a third party ticket for president. Uh, Wallace was a, was a racist. Uh, He's like a so-called Dixie Democrat, you know, like a, a Southern Democrat who'd become famous in 1963 for his steadfast opposition to desegregation when he was governor of Alabama. Is that right? I think he was governor of Alabama. Um, and there he, he stood was, on a yeah. yeah he stood on a platform um, of made famous in a speech he gave, gave um, the, the, the the sort of most famous line of which was segregation now segregation tomorrow segregation forever so that that's who he he is uh, who he was and in 1968 he made much of his opposition to the student left and the protest movements kind of like people I guess today talking about you know anti or woke politics or whatever you know kind of like trump and he said quote if some anarchist lies down in front of my automobile it will be the last automobile he'll ever lie down in front of uh, he also said that the only four letter words that hippies don't know are w-o-r-k and s-o-a-p so camilla attended a protest against one of his rallies uh, in the local area and police fired tear gas into the crowd and she claimed that this actually caused permanent damage to her eyes and obviously helped to um increase her her political engagement i guess um and she was also getting increasingly tired of men and their bullshit um in college she dated same girl yeah 
in college she dated uh, another young student, uh, a guy who was always talking about how he was going to get a job in a Peace Corps. Um, and she liked him. She took him home to meet her parents, who she was very close with. She, 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 wrote, she wrote a lot. There's a lot of surviving letters between her and her parents, and she's clearly um, very, very close with them, um, which is understandable given the circumstances. But when he was actually offered a job in a Peace Corps, he actually didn't take it. And, you know, this angered and disillusioned her. Um, and despite being close to her father, she, she started to become disillusioned a little bit with him too, because she felt he wasn't using his position as a pastor to really preach a moral case against the war enough, even though he, he agreed. So in December 1969, she visited um, an old colleague in Topanga Canyon outside Los Angeles, and um, she liked it there. So she withdrew $1,200 from her pension fund, and she moved out to join them. Um, and, you know, she kind of went L.A., you know, if you know what I mean. She, she sort of stopped smoking. She became a vegetarian. She finally called it a day with men, and she began to seek out relationships with women instead. Uh, and she also For began, her. yeah, and she also began to make a lot more art um, and become increasingly angry with politics. In 1970, in a letter to her parents, she wrote, "Quote: Keep the dialogue dialogue going about the war, Dad. It's really important. I'm just sick over Kent State and Nixon's insane move in Cambodia. Things get more scary every day." In 1971, she visited Berkeley, the Berkeley, Berkeley, the University of California, Berkeley. Yeah, is that, yeah, that's how you pronounce it, Berkeley. That is how you pronounce it, Berkeley. Um, she visited, and she placed that she visited only uh, eight years after my father was briefly a student of literature there. Um, Although I think he did uh, well. Never mind. He left so, to follow music, and the rest is history. But. Um, so in 1971, she visited Berkeley, the campus town for the University of California, which is near Oakland, outside San Francisco, which was really the hub of the new left on the East Coast, um, the sort of home of the anti- anti-war movement there. It was um, extremely active, um, and she liked it, so she decided to move there. Uh, it was cool. It was leftist. Um, the Bay Area was probably one of the only areas in the U.S. at a time with a really sort of open and active um, LGBTQ political scene. And she wrote to her parents, quote, I think the environment will be very stimulating and the vibrations are just terrific. It's almost a world, world unto itself and it's definitely a liberated zone. They just elected four radicals to the city council, so it'll be fun to see what happens. Which is um, remarkably, uh, it's, it's kind of charming, but also sad knowing that at the same time the new left was kind of breaking apart in, into sort of internecine conflict and... Um, she sort of arrived there almost kind of a couple of years after the summer of love and she's experiencing this like other side of it. But obviously she's, she's very committed politically. So she, I think it's interesting. She shows up in 1971 in the Bay area and uh, people listen to um, last season might remember the uh, Alpine Valley gays uh, who wanted to create a kind of uh, liberated free state for gays uh, out in uh, Alpine Valley, California, through a kind of local government takeover a la Wild Wild Country, although they didn't get as far and they didn't spread any salmonella on any salad bars. I guess the answer is that you need a Sheila in your in your commune to really get things going. But um, I think that's just an interesting sort of point of departure to think about two things. One, the fact that in retrospect, um, the 1970s are a period of... Uh, what we might describe as the kind of disillusion of uh, the new left. 
uh, in the, at the moment, and especially when you're thinking about gay stuff, uh, the 70s are actually enormously productive. There's a famous historiographic argument from John D'Amelio who argues that for the gays, the 70s were the 60s. Um, and there is an ongoing history all the way through the 1980s and 1990s um, in the Bay Area as uh, documented in Emily Hobson's uh, very excellent book on this subject, which I've talked about on the show quite a lot, so I like the book quite a lot, um, of uh, really um, politically effective and radical uh, anti-imperialist gay organizing and a politics of alliance between left anti-imperialist and gay struggles in, uh, in that area. Um, and so what's interesting is in when it gets then retconned in people's heads, uh, because San Francisco is also, has always, always also been a hotbed of a particular kind of, um, by the wealthy, for the wealthy, urban liberalism of someone like Nancy Pelosi. Um, and once those people accept the gays, the Bay Area gets retconned into kind of representing that version of gayness, right? Mm. Instead of the Ask Queen Nancy Pelosi version. When Nancy Pelosi ran for her House seat, she beat a gay socialist by barely any votes. I mean, she just like barely squeaked by a gay socialist to get that seat. So there's always, there's always has been this kind of tension. And of course, since uh, tech went into that area, the entire kind of basis of everything has radically changed. But um, that's me on my soapbox about the history of gay liberation in the Bay Area and how all of these different movements kind of fit in and play out. Oh, that's really useful into sort of putting into context, actually, like the time that she was arriving and what was about to happen there um, in relation to the sort of the end of the 60s and, and that change of the new left and then what came after. She found an apartment uh, in Berkeley at 2021 Channing Way, which is like five or six blocks from UCAL um, and also from the People's Park. Uh, she moved in because a friend of hers from high school was already living in the same apartment block and uh, was working in the theatre. And while she was there, she met her upstairs neighbor, a young university student called um, Patricia Soltisic. Uh, Camilla was 25, Patricia was 20, um, but they were both passionate about the anti-war movement and about social change. Um, Patricia had enrolled at UCAL in 1968 on a state scholarship. She'd been raised in California, and she quickly became involved in politics as a feminist, an anti-war activist, and a leftist revolutionary. And that soon overtook her studies. And in fact, she dropped out and began working in the university library as a janitor. When her brother asked her whether she still intended to become a lawyer, which she was certainly capable of doing intellectually, she reportedly told him, Sisters, none of us are free until we are all free. She was especially radicalized by the ongoing conflict over People's Park. This was a piece of land owned by UCAL, which they had intended to turn into student housing for years, but they never had. And so it was occupied by students and locals to turn it into a community park, which they landscaped and they planted trees and other plants. And then they used it as a, a site, like a local park and a site to distribute free food. The university announced that they were planning to turn back into a sports field. And obviously this is very contentious. Um, but they, they said they wouldn't do it without liaising with the community and with the park activists. Um, and so there was this relative peace between the park organization and the, the university. However, Ronald Reagan had recently been elected as governor of California, partly on a platform of tackling what had been seen as a sort of increasing left-wing organization at the state's public universities, which Reagan had claimed had become, quote, a haven for communist sympathizers, protesters, and sex deviants. Sounds like my kind of place. Is there, do you have an address? Or? <laughs> Yeah. Where, where are Ber these people? Berkeley. 
Yeah. Um, in the early hours of Thursday, May the 15th, 1969, Reagan had sent cops to close down the park. They erected chain, chain link fencing around it and ripped up the flowers and trees that had been planted, despite the promise of UCAL not to do anything court discussion first, um, because he said that he saw that the park uh, the park was like a breach of the property rights of the university, and obviously this being Reagan property rights rule above anything else. So fuck the trees. Um, but then there was a protest later that afternoon, uh, and that grew and grew and grew until it was 6,000 people strong. Reagan's chief of staff deployed riot cops, who firstly fired tear gas into the crowd, and then they attacked it with batons, and then they fired shotguns into the crowd, uh, killing one and injuring hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. The sheriff in charge later stated, quote, the choice was essentially this, to use shotguns because we didn't have the available manpower or a treat and abandon the city of Berkeley to the mob. That evening, Reagan called in the National Guard who patrolled the city for two weeks. They broke up any meetings of more than four people and they fired tear gas uh, into the offices of local newspapers. They even sprayed tear gas from helicopters flying overhead, gassing local schools. And that, that continued for uh, two, two more weeks. And the event became known as Bloody Thursday. And that really, really radicalized Patricia and forced her to confront head on the, the violence of the state. So Patricia and Camilla met in the apartments on Canning Way and they were immediately attracted to each other and they fell in love. Camilla would write love poems for Patricia and in one she gave her the nickname Ms. Moon. Um, this became her, you know, their name for, for Patricia and then from then on she began to call herself Ms. Moon. Uh, and then she even actually changed her name legally. So Ms. Moon and Camilla began working together in their activism. Uh, firstly, it seems in gay liberation work and in the women's movement. And then Camilla got a job in the Oakland Park District. Um, and she began organizing amongst her colleagues, demanding equal pay and equal rights for women. They also became involved in uh, Benzeremos, a Chicano activist group at the time who advocated community self-defense, and prison abolition and prison reform in the Bay Area. Uh, and they were involved, in fact, in making a documentary about prisons and also writing to prisoners. Um, but things weren't always smooth sailing between Ms. Moon and Patricia. It appears Camilla wanted them to have a monogamous relationship, but, um, but Ms. Moon didn't. And so in October of 1972, Camilla decided she needed a break. And with some money from her parents, she traveled to Europe with a few friends, hitchhiking around Spain, Greece, and Holland for a few months. When she came back, she visited her folks in Chicago, but they were surprised to see her, thinking that she'd be traveling for a lot longer. Um, but she said that she'd been lonely in Europe. She called Ms. Moon, and then they met up in Denver, and they rekindled their love on a, a, a happy road trip around the southwest U.S. for a few weeks. Um, but it wasn't to last, and by 1973, the couple had broken up, although they stayed both close friends and comrades. Over the course of 1972, they'd both been getting a lot more involved in Benzeremos, um, and another person who was involved in the group was a prisoner called Donald DeFries. He was an inmate at Vacaville Prison, uh, who had been a member of the Black Cultural Association, an African-American inmate group run by Colston Westbrook a linguist who was a, a Berkeley postgrad student. The Freeze had been sentenced to jail in 1969 after being shot by police during a bank robbery. The aims of the BCA were to improve educational standards for black prisoners through black empowerment. 
De Vries became an enthusiastic member, and through the BCA he, wet, he met white student radicals, including two named Willie Wolfe and Russ Little. Um, they'd become involved in prison work, and through them he became more interested in and influenced by uh, radical leftist currents that, were, that they were discussing at the time. And De Vries also met another inmate at Vacaville called uh, Thera Wheeler, who was a former Black Panther, who had left the Panthers, but he was a voracious reader of Marx and Lenin and also an inmate organiser, and they became friends. The men decided that the mass political action of the New Left was proving a failure, and influenced by Maoist groups and revolutionaries in South America, they decided to form a new group of urban guerrillas. In December 1972, De Vries uh, was moved to Soledad Prison, and in March 1973, he managed to escape. He made his way to a popular commune named Peking House, and he contacted uh, Willie Wolf and Russell Little, and they regarded it as too dangerous for him to stay, stay there. So they arranged him to stay with a comrade that they knew through Ben Seremos, uh, Ms. Moon. So De Vries and Ms. Moon lived together for a few months, and they rapidly became lovers, and engaged in, they were engaged in these long political discussions with their friends from, from radical movements and from Berkeley, um, including Camilla. They decided to form a new organization, and they called it the Symbionese Liberation Army. De Vries took the nom de guerre uh, Field Marshal, General Field Marshal Sinkyu, uh, which he took from the name of Joseph Sank, uh, he just pronounced it differently, who was the leader of the slave rebellion on board the slaving ship, the Amistad. Um, and if people are interested in the Amistad, it's a very fascinating story, and there's actually a very good book about it by Marcus Redeker. But he became the group leader of the Symbionese Liberation Army. There were 11 members. It depends maybe what sources you go from, but there were, there were about 11 members of the original group, uh, six women and five men. And despite the black nationalist ideology of the group, all but the Fries were white, and they mainly came from middle-class homes. Ms. Moon took the name Zoya, and Camilla took the name Gabby. The ideology of the SLA was um, black nationalist in influence and was based around the seven principles of Kwanzaa, the annual holiday celebrating African-American culture, which has its roots in a Marxist and pan-African philosophies. They aim to overcome racism, fascism, individualism, possessiveness, sexism, ageism, monogamy, the prison system, and, quote, all the other institutions that have made and sustained capitalism. And in line with um, other black nationalist priorities at the time, they aimed to create homelands on U.S. territory for black people and for other people of color. They took as their symbol a seven-headed hydra, reflecting their seven principles, um, as taken from Kwanzaa, uh, which they explained in their propaganda in Swahili, English, and Spanish. And these were, in English, unity, self-determination, collective work and responsibility, cooperative production, purpose, creativity, and faith. In August, the group orchestrated another prison escape and sprang Thero Wheeler from prison, and he joined the SLA. They stole weapons, mainly from the homes of other leftist revolutionaries in the Bay Area, and on November the 6th, the group committed their first attack as an urban guerrilla movement. There had been a plan to introduce ID cards in Oakland schools, ostensibly to try and limit drug dealers on, pro on school property. The SLA condemned this as fascist, and so they waited outside an Oakland school board meeting on the, 6th, um, on the 6th of November. And when the superintendent of the Oakland Unified School District, Marcus Foster, left, they shot him eight times with hollow-tip bullets that were packed with cyanide. Uh, 
So there was no chance that he would survive. Ironically, sadly, tragically, really, uh, they'd been mistaken and Foster had actually been the opponent of the ID card scheme. And he was actually the first black superintendent of a major city school district in the entire country. And Wheeler didn't approve the killing of Foster or this take up of violence in this way. And he was also quickly disillusioned um, with these uh, sort of increasingly aggressive behavior of DeFries towards other group members. And he called him a drunken fool. A drunken fool. Um, DeFries issued a death threat against him. And then Wheeler and his girlfriend, uh, a young white heiress or supposed heiress, I'm not entirely sure, called Mary Alice Seam, um, they left the group. But it seems that Camilla was committed to the SLA from the beginning. She'd become frustrated with organising in the workplace, not least because she only ever got short contracts, um, and also with life in Berkeley in general. In fact, she wrote to her parents in 1972 that, quote, revolution has to be social as well as political, maybe more. But it's going so slowly that it doesn't seem like revolution at all. Very gradual consciousness, raise, consciousness raising would be a better term. People are very difficult to struggle with, and it takes a very great deal of energy. But then you already know that. After the killing of Marcus Foster, she went back to Chicago for Christmas to see her parents. And um, according to the account of H.H. H. Honig, who interviewed her parents in the 1970s, her conversation uh, would have, quote, a frequent apocalyptic strain. She, expe uh, she expected a severe depression and questioned whether the country would survive it as we know it. On the way to the airport, she said grim things about how serious the situation was in our country. She returned to the Bay Area, and on the 2nd of January 1974, Camilla went and bought a gun. Um, eight days later, a routine traffic stop ended with a shootout between cops and two SLA members, and they were arrested for the murder of Marcus Foster. But this also put the SLA on the radar of both the cops and the media, especially when the FBI raided an SLA safe house that they'd abandoned in a hurry, and they'd, had, they'd left their propaganda everywhere, so it had a name now, and... Um, the media could sort of focus on them. On the 4th of February, the SLA pulled off their next action, the one that would take this small leftist revolutionary group, one amongst many in the US at the time, and make them into pop cultural icons. They kidnapped Patty Hearst. Hearst was a sophomore, sophomore at UCAL in uh, Berkeley at the time. And she was prim and proper. And she was a young conservative. She was the heiress to the Hearst newspaper empire the 19-year-old granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst. To say that she was not radical is to put it lightly. She'd actually broken up the year before with her boyfriend after, discover after discovering that he'd smoked pot. The SLA actually found her address, which was uh, a house in Berkeley, uh, following her recent engagement, and the address had been published in newspapers. They kidnapped, him, kidnapped her from her apartment. According to Hearst's account, she was beaten unconscious in the attack, uh, and a machine gun was fired, and then when she was taken to the safe house, she was locked in a cupboard for a week. The aim was to use, use her as leverage to free the two SLA members arrested the month before. When that failed, they ransomed her. Um, originally, they asked for $4 million, uh, $4 million worth of food to be distributed to the poor and needy of California. Uh, at one point, that actually rose in the, sort of, in the uh, negotiations to $400 million of food. In the end, Hearst's father eventually organized for $2 million of food to be distributed. Um, but the operation descended into chaos with fighting over food trucks and also alleged organized crime and then other leftist groups stealing food and selling it for profit. 
the, the, the group also didn't release Patty as a result. So what happens next is controversial. Um, Hearst herself proclaimed that she was brainwashed and sexually abused by the group. And uh, her lawyer argued later that she had become a victim of Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, members of the SLA would later claim that she voluntarily shifted to supporting the group's aims following long conversations. What is clear is that within two weeks of her kidnap, Hearst was recorded advocating the ideals and aims of the SLA. And within two months, she'd become a full-fledged member using the nom de guerre Tanya. Moving from safe house to... Is this where we get that incredibly famous picture of Patty Hearst? With, with, the, um, with the gun and in front of the SLA flag? With the gun in front of the SLA flag, yes. Yeah, yeah. that was released really that, that is an iconic, iconic, iconic photograph uh, that I encourage our listeners to go take a look at. Um, it's, I mean, it is very likely, it seems likely that Patty Hearst was to obviously to some extent coerced to join this group. Um, uh, however, no one has ever looked cooler than Patty Hearst did in that picture. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it was just such a powerful image. Um, and it really, I think was important to, um, really was important to uh, getting a whole generation of uh, Americans believing that there were these really sexy, really dangerous terrorists out there. And if they could come and, and get someone at that level of society, they could get you too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess kind of the, the American equivalent of the Bader Meinhof gang, um, although with um, quite different political, if not political aims, then, uh, yeah, like a different political vibe, I guess. Um, so, yeah, they, they were moving from safe house to safe house and the SLA evaded capture. And so on the uh, 15th of April, they launched their next attack, a bank robbery of the Hibernia Bank branch at 1450 Noriega Street in San Francisco. Taking part, carrying an M1 carbine, was um, Patty Hearst, captured on camera, as well as Camilla Hall. They made off with $10,000, with Hall spraying Noriega Street with automatic gunfire to provide cover. The raid was a sensation, front page news, and the involvement of Hearst turned it into a, this legendary news event. Like you said, it's, it's just so iconic of the early 70s. But the footage of the heiress toting machine gun while the SLA uh, made the SLA the absolute priority of both the news and so the authorities. The SLA, meanwhile, uh, who had been commandeering safe houses and stealing weapons from other revolutionaries, were aware that they were losing the potential to recruit new members um, because they were ostracizing so many people in their supposed community. Following a botched and seemingly opportunistic shoplifting attempt involving Hearst, the net was also tightening around them. The cops had found a driving ticket addressed to their safe house in the glove box of the abandoned getaway van. The SLA had fled, but they got a further tip-off uh, from that raid, and then they surrounded the new safe house. A SWAT team fired tear gas into the house, and a gun battle ensued between the SLA and the police, and it was one of the most intense gun battles in US history, um, the most intense sieges. Within two hours, over 9,000 rounds of ammunition were exchanged between the two groups. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, during the battle, Camilla Hall attempted to run out of the house where she was shot in the head by police, and she died on the spot, although her body was dragged back towards the house. 
And then during a gunfight in the house, which was now filled with the, the house, which was filled with tear gas, caught fire. And all the remaining members who had been inside the house, which didn't actually include Hurst, she was watching from a nearby hotel with two other members. Um, they all burnt to death within a crawl space in the house, with the exception of the Freeze, who committed suicides during the siege. Um, and on the body of Camilla, they found a letter to her parents, which I'm just going to read from, uh, just the start of it. Um, so this was found on May the 17th, 1974 in LA. Dear mom and dad, how are you? I've been thinking, I've been thinking about you a lot and hoping that all is well with you. I get a lot of strength from our love and it really helps me keep going. I'm sending this through Phil and Candy because I know you're probably being watched very carefully by now. My name has been in the papers and TV, etc. The FBI missed me by a matter of days in, in Berkeley, Berkeley but we're staying several jumps ahead of them at all times by using our creativity and determination to survive and carry on the business of the revolution. I want you to remember that I'm with really good people and that we've trained ourselves in a great many ways because we realize the importance of the people's forces surviving and gaining victory after victory. You know, I never do anything half-assed. Half-assed. Um, our attitude is very positive and our courage comes from our love for the people and hatred for the enemy. You know well that I've worked for change all my conscious life. I went through many stages of development, attacking the enemy in, very, in many different fronts, only to see change co-opted into reformism. I exhausted all the possibilities before finally deciding that this was the only way to actually get the revolution going in realistic terms. It has become increasingly obvious, or rather I used to be incredibly naive, that the ruling class and a corporate state have no intention of giving up any power voluntarily, witness the contortions Nixon has gone through to stay in power and that the capitalist system is an evil that must be destroyed. We are actively engaged in battling the enemy wherever we find it, the enemy within as well as the enemy without. The putrid disease of bourgeois mentality is in all of us, and we are constantly working to rid ourselves of it so we can, become, so we can be better soldiers and fighters for the people. Um, and that was the life of Camilla Hall. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to our show. We've now been downloaded more than 325,000 times, which is incredible. And we're so grateful for all of your support. And especially thanks to our Patreon listeners. Without your help, it really wouldn't be possible. It really wouldn't be. Um, and so we know you all know this, but we want to let you know that at our website, badgazepod.com, you can find a few very important things. One, you can find a link to our Patreon where you can support the show. Uh, second, you can find uh, some very beautiful T-shirts for sale. I'm wearing mine now, Hugh. Is it not lovely? Very nice. Uh, and you can also find, of course, an archive of all of our past episodes. Uh, we don't work with a media company. We don't put anything behind a paywall. We just rely on people who think that we're doing good work and who enjoy the show to uh, back that up with some support. And so we're really grateful to all of you who do. And we also understand that if you don't want to, times are tough. So you can also just completely keep listening. But uh, if you do want to support us, that's at badgazepod.com. Well, I have a few questions for you. Uh, first, uh, what ended up happening to Patty Hearst? Yeah, so Hearst wasn't um, involved in the shootout. She, she survived um, and she stayed a member of the SLA. Uh, she was involved um, in two unsuccessful attempts to, um, to assassinate police officers with explosives. But, but, and she, made, she actually was the bomb maker, it's thought, but they actually failed to explode. And she was arrested in uh, 1975. 
and then that's this, this obviously is sort of trial of the century is sort of early oj i mean in fact one of the interesting things is the first, when the the house was surrounded during the siege um that, that siege was one of the first live news broadcasts of an event uh the, the cameras that necessary to do live broadcast had just been invented so yeah she was arrested and when she was arrested she um she listed her occupation when she was being booked into jail as urban griller uh, but over the course of her defence, obviously she changed her defence, um, and she she sort of um, claimed she was no longer uh, she she sort of uh, switched her allegiance from the SLA um, and talked a lot about the experience that she'd had, and um, there was an attempt by her defence to suggest that she had uh, suffered from Stockholm Stockholm syndrome, but it didn't really work. She was sentenced to a maximum a maximum sentence of thirty five years. Um, but that was pending a, a uh, final sentence hearing. Um, and then in between the sentence hearing, the sentencing and the sentence hearing, um, the judge died. So there was another judge who turned the sentence and she got seven years. But even that was cut when she was, um, uh, her sentence was commuted by uh, Jimmy Carter after she'd served 22 months. And then on his last day in office in 2001, on January 20th, um, Bill Clinton actually pardoned her. And she went on, obviously, after being released, becoming even more of a celebrity. And she's actually, she features in a number of um, John Waters films. <laughs> of course. Of course she does. Um, it seems like the Symbionese Liberation Army um, had a fairly, it seems like there's a pretty big split between what they actually did um, and between their expressed goals. Um, is your sense that it began as a uh, it began as a kind of activist group um, in the kind of new left tradition, and then uh, somehow eventually warped into something different or worse, or what it became, uh, or is it your sense that uh, its leadership? Uh, was always so, or rather its leader, singular, was always so, um, was dead, like never had any particular political goals and was essentially just an egomaniac. No, I think he was, he was genuinely politically engaged, but I think he was potentially also an e egomaniac. Um, but at the same time, I think um, the political, um, the political aims of the uh, SLA stayed the same all the way through, and also the way to reach them kind of stayed the same way through. Like they, they were formed with the intention of being an urban guerrilla group in much the same way as um, uh, uh, other other urban guerrilla groups around the world, as we we're saying before. You know, like um, the Bader Meinhof gang, for example. Um, so, so yeah, I think that was the aim was to sort of incite revolution through these. Um, propaganda of the deed in a certain way um, to make these like symbolic strikes against um, what they saw as the capitalist system. Is there any, I mean, in addition to the fact that, that she was kidnapped, um, is there any indication that uh, Hearst was coerced into uh, her political statements while she was, while she was there other than, I mean, other, a, she's just kidnapped. So there you go. That's some coercion. But in addition to that. Yeah. Um, early on, definitely, and then later, it does seem whether wh whether she's a victim of Stockholm syndrome, whether she's been brainwashed, or whether she actually genuinely believed in the aims of the SLA. Um, later, she does appear to be um, not just you know doing what she's told, but actually generating her own political opinions as a result. Um, 
or and but, she does, I think political not... opinions that aren't just aren't just verbatim what she's told. Which is why, which she, is why the FBI at the time said that she, you know, or the Attorney General, sorry, at the time said that she was a willing participant because, um, yeah, it, it does appear that that was the case. Yeah, and she does end up, uh, she does end up uh, claiming that she has been, uh, I believe, repeatedly raped yeah. by members of the SLA while she's in captivity. Yeah, but it also she later talks about having. Uh, before before the trial, she talks about having um, been in love with one of the other members um, who died. But for me, actually, I think obviously it, it, it's totally understandable why she became uh, why Patty Hearst became such a a huge pop cultural icon because of the the drama and the romance, I guess, of this situation. But but I think Camilla Hall's story tells us a lot more about the SLA and how it was formed, and also the New Left at the time, and this exasperation that she'd had about um, the failure of other forms of organizing and also the blind spots within those forms of organizing that were happening amongst the largely white left, you know, that that there was a strange interaction between the white left and university campuses and then the way they interacted with groups like the Black Panthers um, or the Black Cultural Association. Um, And that to me seems to be the dynamic at the center of um, the SLA, which is like an inability of the people who are involved to really um, understand how best they could be engaged in activism, which um, dealt with the racism they had seen around them as part of the capitalist system, which didn't involve themselves being somehow renouncing it in this ma- almost Maoist way, and then taking on this this sort of like heroic uh, savior role, I guess. Mm-hmm. That makes I mean, sense. this is this is a this is a political like a black nationalist political organization of which over ninety percent of the members are white. That seems to me to be like the integral thing, and and also all of almost all of whom come from um, very well off middle class backgrounds, and they all come into it through this new left activism, as opposed to the, the, the freeze, who um who was uh uh. uh a crim- who was like came into it through prison, right? Right. They had uh, extremely there, different, extremely different um, life stories. Is there a reason why someone of DeFries's political viewpoint uh, chooses to organize mostly uh, these sort of middle-class, college-educated white people? Um, I think it was partly the opportunity fell into his lap of having having um, escaped himself from prison and to be put into a safe house of people and this is the community he was around. Um, I don't think we can really know his, his reasoning um, beyond, beyond that. I don't know whether that's a political decision or just an opportunistic decision. Um, but certainly there were plenty of space, spaces, maybe not because he was on the run, I guess, but there were plenty of um, organizations like the Black Panther Party at the time who were, who were black people organizing within black communities um, and organizing in very different ways that actually had much more of a you know a direct effect upon the the lives of the communities that they lived in rather than this sort of um spectacular kidnapping Cappy, patty Hearst attempt to overthrow capitalism all right well um I think that brings us to our inevitable question oh, there's one there's one other thing that's quite interesting which is that shortly before about about a year just before she joined the Sim, uh, Simbanese liberation army. Um, Camilla Hall was diagnosed with the same 
medical condition that killed her brother and sister. Um, so there is some discussion uh, in analysis around the time about whether that was the thing that sort of motivated her towards um, towards becoming engaged in an increasingly radical and dangerous political movement in that way. Oh, that is interesting. Um, so that brings us to the question, Hugh. Camilla Hall, bad gay or not bad gay? I guess it depends what you think about um, the SLA. Um, personally, my, my, my personal politics is that I think uh, would coalesce with, I guess, some of the diagnoses of capitalist society that were existing in that time around these groups. But for me, um, I mean, there's a famous, um, there's a famous uh, pamphlet about this exact issue, which is called You Can't Blow Up a Social Relationship. For me, it seems that like, these, these things almost emerge out of um, a frustration within the white left of, uh, of an inability to organize within their own communities, uh, within working class communities themselves. Um, and then this like inability to really talk properly and discuss around issues of race within the left, um, which I think is like, this was the way that they felt they could get through. It was through this like spectacular sort of bravery slash spectacular acts, acts of crime, which they saw as, you know, like would prove their allegiance and their willingness to, to, to overthrow racism in society as they saw it. Um, but that's not, that's not how capitalism and racism work. You know, you can't kidnap Patty Hearst and then overthrow capitalism. It's about changing society on this different level. So while I'm not somebody who's going to take like this liberal, li this liberal position of like, oh, they were violent, et cetera, et cetera. Like I can understand how in certain, certain circumstances, violence is part of politics, is part of political change. And in some ways that is the, the defining aspect of politics is the monopoly on violence and, and trying to over, overcome that monopoly on violence that's held within a capitalist state. So I'm not just going to, I'm not going to say like, oh God, they were like, they were, they were violent, but, but rather that their violence was, was purposeless. Like they, this, this was theater rather than politics and, and whose life was changed for the better, um, through, through, through these acts, um, that there are much, like a much more radical position is not necessarily violence in this situation, but community organizing. So, um, but having said that, um, I don't think she was a, a bad person. And then this is like a sort of one year period of her life. Um, that was a increasingly in, and intensely manic, I guess. Um, and a political situation at times manic and the situation that she was facing in terms of like the, the, the power and violence of the American state was absolutely overwhelming, you know, her experience of it. And she felt like they were pushed. There was on the brink of a revolution or, or, or a fascist takeover or however she saw it. Um, that as with all of the people who are members, like there's something uh, in there that's got terribly derailed into this almost cult-like situation. Um, but in terms of bad, I mean, like, and, and in terms of violence, I mean, if you're talking body count, uh, Camilla Hall had a long, long way to go before she, she reached anywhere near Ronald Reagan, for example. So I'm yeah, going to say that makes... com complicated. I think that makes sense. I mean, I think for me, I think I have a slightly harder take on the Symbian East Liberation Army than you do. Um, not because I disagree with you on your, uh, on your kind of basic, the kind of basic ways that you laid out there. Uh, I, I think a very, 
a very good critique of um, of their violence and its spectacular pointlessness. Uh, but I also think that it uh, was sort of emblematic of, um, maybe if not for its leader, then certainly for its participants, of a certain kind of uh, really poisonous attitude in the American left um, that we still see a lot now, actually, especially in queer movements, um, which is a particular kind of uh, upper-class lifestyle-oriented vanguardism in which um, a spec kind of spectacular acts of non-normativity take the place of any actual, uh, the development of any actual analysis or politics. And um, I think you see this in uh, a lot of uh, contemporary queer politics, actually, in the United States right now, um, that, you know, it's much more radical to be, um, you know, someone, frankly, like me from my background, um, who, uh, you know, can therefore afford to uh, live in a city and not work a nine-to-five job and never shop at Walmart and have these kind of exquisitely crafted views than it is to be uh, a working person who um, is dealing with uh, making the choices that are available to them. And um, and so for that reason, I'm going to say she is a bad gay. And also, and, and, and on top of all of that, and I, I should have led with this and not... And not um, I should have led with this, and I should have not uh, not let it sort of fall to the end here. Um, the allegations that Patty Hearst made um, that she was repeatedly raped and sexually assaulted upon her upon her capture by the by the SLA. If you are going to be uh, a group that is about uh, creating the new politics, um, even if you're kidnapping heiresses, you should not be raping them into submission. And so, for that reason, I'm going to say bad gay. Yeah. I mean, on that note, obviously, I, I agree entirely, actually, yeah. So, Hugh, what are some of the sources that you agreed to, uh, that you used to um, research this episode? Well, there's actually very little written about her specifically. She's, she's largely a footnote in Patty Hearst's story, um, <clears throat> especially because there isn't that much evidence about, uh, other than the, the bank raid, about her actual involvement in the crimes of um, SLA. Um, so one of the things I thought I found that was very interesting was um, was a thesis from 1979 that I found online called um, a psychobiographical study of Camilla Hall by H H Honig, which goes into some depth of Freudian analysis, which I didn't really use around her upbringing and stuff, but does cre- uh, does involve a, a huge amount of primary primary sources, including all those letters from her to her parents and interviews with her parents about her early life. So that's very interesting. From the other end of the scale, um, I also consulted the hearings, reports, and prints of the House Committee of Internal Security um, by the United States um, House of Congress Committee on Internal Security, which um, not just has uh, their own findings, but a lot of um, press materials from the time included in it. And I also uh, um, looked at female terrorism in America, past and present perspectives by Jonathan Matusitz and Elena Berisha. And lastly, I found a blog of a writer um, called Rachel Hanel, Hanel, sorry, uh, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L, um, who is in the process of writing a book, um, a biography of her. But as far as I can find, I tried to find it and it, it was not yet been published. But she's actually um, interviewed on a podcast called Tales from the Midwest. And um, uh, she gives like a very interesting account of um, 
of her, her writing this book and also of um, Camilla's life in the Midwest. Well, great. Um, that has been another episode of Bad Gaze. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. And you can follow the show at Bad Gaze Pod and or visit our website at badgazepod.com for a link to our Patreon, for uh, T-shirts, and for an episode archive. Uh, thanks so much. And until next time, uh, see ya. Bye. 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 Bad, 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 bad,